1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to John Wiltz about his book, Gamer Nation, Video Games and American Culture. In his book, he examines how video games co-op national landscapes, livelihoods and legends. Arguing that video games toy with Americans' mass cultural and historical understanding, John shows how games reprogram the American experience as a simulated reality. John, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Rudolf, and great to be here on the New Books Network. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: John, um, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Of course, including your favorite video game and the one or the ones you are playing currently.
0: Thanks, Rudolf. Well, I'm a, a, a cultural historian at the University of Kent in the UK, and i focus on american popular culture and i've kind of branched into game studies over recent years um in terms of playing video games that's 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 a longer story than my my academic story um i've been playing video games since i was a, a child in the 1970s so i was probably one of the first generation of of gamers i guess and one of my earliest experiences is is playing uh, Breakout, that um, kind of tennis bat and ball game, uh, at uh, the local, in the UK, fish and chip shop. So playing a game uh, when I was growing up in the arcade there. um, I would say that, yeah, definitely I'm I'm a gamer and uh, my dedication is... Varied across the eras, but I have a few favorite machines and favorite video games. Um, I like, I have my own uh, MB Vectrix from the early 1980s, and I like Sega machines like the Saturn and Dreamcast. And in terms of video games, I guess things like uh, Daytona USA, GoldenEye on the Nintendo 64, uh, Shenmue, and more recently, video games like Fire Emblem, uh, Three Houses. Wasteland 3 on the PlayStation 4 I like, and currently I'm playing uh, Metroid Dread, which is a kind of retro uh, video game uh, title, so yeah, I, I I still play video games, but yeah, my, my job sometimes gets in the way a little bit, but yeah, but yeah, I'm definitely a gamer.
1: Now, isn't that something we're all struggling with, right? <laughs> uh, yes,
0: that's right, trying to balance uh, <laughs> our playing <and> careers. <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh, circling back to your recent publication, um, how did you actually come to write Gamer Nation?
0: Um, Well, around 20 years ago, which is a long time, actually, I I wrote an article exploring how video games were depicting nature. Um, At the time, I think I just finished a PhD in, in, in US environmental issues. So I was interested in how do we depict the natural world? But I was also, as I said, a gamer. And I thought, oh, how do, how do video games tackle the organic? How does the digital tackle the organic world? Um, so I wrote a piece there, but I, I left it. I didn't really go back to it. I didn't explore games that much, which in retrospect, I probably should have done. Um, and then about 10 years ago, I wrote an article on how the American West was set uh, you know, how games about the American West explored American history. And that led me to get funding from the British Academy to research depictions of America. So so a bit of a broader title in video games. Um, And that that was a really kind of, uh, as academics know, you know, getting some research funding is really important. And it allowed me to, to work on Gamer Nation, the book. It also allowed me to exhibit uh, some of my research at the British Academy, and and you know I started writing this title for Johns Hopkins, um, exploring really my, my sense of enthusiasm and interest in American amusements, and exploring specifically how games do that. Um, so yeah it kind of flowed uh quite organically but over quite a long time frame probably longer than than i'd imagine because i get get caught up in other projects at the same time yeah it's like but this is something that uh, also, I guess, is something
1: we 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 as gamers, so to so to speak, know very well. We have to, from time to time, we have to stop and rely on our safe games, and then pick it up later again.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yes, yeah, so I am one of those people. I will I will save a game and then um, come back to it. Sometimes a few weeks or a year later, but I also have no clue what I'm doing. <laughs> so uh, hopefully that's not a problem in my in my academic work. But yeah. (laughs) I have those things go on.
1: Well, you decided to let your version of a ludic America start in the 1960s and 70s. Additionally, you do introduce the concept of frontier to your readers. Now, I'm pretty sure this is exactly where you had the attention of all U.S. history uh, scholars and teachers alike. Um, Could you please take us through your
0: thoughts here? Yeah, of course. Um one thing to say, you know, quite quite naturally is, you know, the, the ludic play is, is part of the human condition. It's also part of the the animal condition. Um, you know, if you have a cat or dog at home, Rudolph, I don't know whether you do, but you know, you see play as as something that, you know, every living thing naturally does to some degree. And so, you know, our ludic past, our our playing past is, is obviously dates back to 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 our beginnings um naturally with this project i'm not going to go anywhere near that Um, and and so you know I, I, I have to be arbitrary and choose somewhere to to start a kind of project on Ludic America, uh, what time frame to look at and And yeah, I, I chose the 60s and 70s to chime and correspond with what you know what we might call a kind of digital turn or a video game turn and the emergence of of, of a new form of digital play. But as you know, the Ludic and play you know, vastly precedes that and um, you know, and also games precede that. You know, y Yo Husinger's book on, on play is from the nineteen thirties. And we you know, we we there's a longer history there, but for me, you know, looking at the video game uh, turn, looking at video games as as a kind of manufactured product, you know, we really need to you know home in at that that genesis period of the, of the of the '60s through '70s. Um, I think it's also important and well, i think i've done a little bit in Game nation to do this to make a nod that video games and digital play don't just come from nowhere um you know that they connect not just with ideas about play but they connect with industries that are already well established amusement spaces such as you know places like coney island further back they connect with sports like bowling soccer tennis etc that they're not just happening in a vacuum they come from um other you know fascinations with play um but certainly yeah for me i i chose that that period and they also reflect a, a burgeoning time of, of play for in the united states anyhow for for the middle classes more free time more affluence which gives us you know, energy and space formal playtime, I think that that's an important aspect too. Um, in terms of the the frontier, uh, yes, it's it's a, it's a big word, isn't it? Um, I can remember when I was looking at Western uh, history, uh, when I was doing my, my PhD back in the 1990s, and I read an article about, um, I think it began with the line, the the new F word, or 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 you yeah, know how 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 loaded it is, but also how offensive it can be too. Um, in 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 my work, um, I'm drawing on you know my my uh, tradition as a kind of Californian Western historian, and the frontier does come to mind. It's an American powerhouse of a term. There's a whole mythology around it as you know um a kind of epic uh, voyage and a discovery element to it in terms of games uh, what i'm trying to do there is is to get a sense of in that time frame there's a sense that the games connect with uh fascinations with a new technological frontier uh the sense of Future gazing uh, that happens in the United States. So I'm thinking in terms of world fairs at Seattle and New York in the 1960s, uh, that fascination with the space age, um, the military industrial complex, which is really exploring computer uses, and you know, JF Kennedy talks of a new frontier. There's there's a sense whereby the frontier is, is not so much backward looking, but forward looking in that period. And I think video games and video game technology it, you know, is a little bit part of that picture of future gazing. Um, and, and that's the kind of sense I'm trying to pick up on here. I'm certainly not trying to argue, however, of um, kind of keeping alive old frontier values or, you know, some of the, the problems. But I do think there's a kind of technological frontier happening.
1: Mm. Well, if I get you correctly, you're also talking about, um, or you do understand games as a, let's say, um, driver of uh, technology then, right?
0: Yes, I, I think that often it's underestimated the impact that games can have on industries, technology, and and the public. We tend to see uh, games as a soft thing, a kind of soft technology, uh, something that's frivolous, escapist. Um, But actually, if we start exploring games in a serious sense, we, we realize that they're they're part of much more um you know the fact that some of the earliest games were tied into developing you know nuclear or military strategy or or working out what computers can actually do it shows that there's a serious side to games and to play that we tend to push to one side i think in, in our culture and sometimes in our scholarship too
1: yeah uh, it's funny though because uh, since uh, since the the ubiquitous term of gamification seems to be one of the uh, honey, honey and favorite words of, of people dealing with, with business nowadays. But only in these terms, in these um, yeah uh, terms of achievements and trophies and rewards. But uh, you also uh, you also talk about another aspect of it when you talk about taking games serious, right?
0: yeah i mean i think you're you're a hundred percent on with the 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 buzzword of gamification and well i think there's an element of seriousness in game studies and thinking about how games um can you know shape how we function yeah it's definitely a kind of in thing at the moment certainly wasn't there in in earlier decades, but we have that that term there um yeah i i am definitely arguing for kind of yeah a more more thoughtful and reflective uh sense of what of how we engage with video games i think that that's incredibly important um and to not get caught up in kind of um old stories of video games but to try to revisit the topic and, and find new ideas about them is, is important too yeah,
1: great yeah in your uh, second chapter, then you bring together games that focus on the American West in the 19th century and video arcade titles from the 1970s and 80s. Now, I must confess, I had to smile reading this very chapter, since one of my students told me recently that she was very sorry to have missed this great time period of arcade entertainment. And of course, I had to ask her where she might have stumbled upon the depiction she had in mind and guess what, of course it was ta Stranger Things <laughs>
0: uh-huh. That's a brilliant story and uh, I think a few of my students have, have said that too, a, te- a teacher module on, on, on games and history um, and there's now a almost a little bit of a mythology or novelty at least over imagining what arcade spaces were like Mm -hmm. and what what arcades were like in the 1970s and early 80s um i think yeah we we are now caught up in nostalgia for that period uh there's a special fondness isn't there uh, as there is you know for for a generation or two ago that is currently for the 1980s and we can see that just in terms of what the last few weeks, the the Top Gun movie, uh, people have a, a kind of recreated um, romantic eye on that period, and I think video games are are one of those big popular culture items from that period, and um, for those who didn't have uh, those lived experiences they're now watching them aren't they through stranger things and other programs um i think it's also yeah it, it is an interesting time um there's there's some new work coming out on you know arcade spaces there's a sense of understanding them as distinctive social areas Um we also have you know this is a, a great time when the first video game genres are decided. You know what does a video game do? What sort of games are there? It's a time of exploration and, and inventiveness, and a lot of the games that we play to, today are still based around ideas and concepts that that come from that period. Um, in terms of the the American West in games, um, naturally again because because my PhD was on, on California, I had a sense of, um, you know, how has the American West been depicted? And for me, it's very interesting how, you know, traditional stories, such as those of the West, were sometimes, not always, but occasionally used to draw people into what was a new media item, to draw people into video games and a new technology. Uh, the great example of this is, is the, the Midway series of two arcade machines, Gunfight and Boot Hill. Which were arcade westerns. They were set around a, a duel between two cowboys, and the the, the interesting thing is that people approached those cabinets, which also looked very old west in arcades. So that's I always thing that was quite quite intriguing. Um, people would uh, would come to those cabinets, and they didn't need. Any instruction. They didn't need to be told what to do. They might not have even played a video game before, but they just looked at the screen and they saw two cowboys with guns on that screen, very pixelated and basic ones, I should say. And, and they knew what to do. The story of the West eased them into learning how to play a video game. And I think that, that that's an interesting idea that we can use Old stories to 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 ease us into a new technology, um, and and people did like those games. Those two were commercially successful alongside you know, other titles that were more forward-looking with their frontiers, such as you know the classic Space Invaders. Um, I think it's also intriguing how how at that time also we have the demise of the commercial Hollywood western Um, people are moving away from the western after it being dominating the cinema and the tv for that matter from the 30s through to the 60s Um, the western is no longer that popular but instead video games you know start picking up the west in a few few times Um, and we also have you know, the space western uh, of, of Star Wars and how Star Wars type games become really, really popular and f- maybe quite fundamental to driving video game success in the late seventies and early eighties. And again, that's something actually I don't explore in, in Game Nation, but it'd be quite intriguing to do that, that 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 interface. Um, and the final point to make is one of one of the one of the other great things about this is that games like gunfight boothoo and later westerns um, they they give players the ability to to shoot back to interact with the West if we look at the first arguably the first Western cinematic Western the great train robbery uh, from the early 20th century there's an amazing scene in it whereby justice D Barnes uh, a cowboy on screen points his gun at the cinema audience, or or at that time, kind of vaudeville theaters, and shoots at the audience. Obviously, not not you know they they don't get hit, but a lot of the people watching apparently did you know duck or or wonder what to do or were scared because they were facing somebody with a gun, and and it's really important how video games. This is the first time, in a sense, they get to to shoot back. Uh, you know and they, they managed to interact with that story for themselves and not be a voyeur a victim or just the audience with it
1: mm. um, two thoughts here when when you're saying that um, the also the the great western uh, productions the film productions um, were some sort of um, what they had also what these developers these early developers had in mind we're talking about the the classical uh, u.s western not the let's call them gritty italian post western era right
0: yeah i think these games uh, such as gunfight and Built 2 i mean gunfight is actually mottled on on a, a japanese title they're very simple and that they they lack um really a sense of strong narrative they don't get into um the the ultra violence or darkness of those italian westerns really they're just a simple basic model of a jewel in the west um that they're yes they they'd be more maybe more aligned to movies such as high noon than than a later kind of italian western because they don't have they don't have the panache or the style of those later ones either and then certainly not being satirical um I think that comes later with some of the kind of visual homages to Italian Westerns that start coming on with when games have a bit better graphics, when they have a bit more sound, you start seeing or hearing, I should say, Ennio Morricone kind of inspired music in in video games. But these first ones, yeah, they're just two cowboys shooting that there's not much else to it, really.
1: Yeah. Now and my my second thought actually uh, and I might skip here some uh, some years but um, I was instantly thinking about um, 2006 when Native American organizations um, have filed a complaint with publisher Activision for the portrayal of tribes in their western shooter gun and this really was um, way before all these talks about um, let's say games are too political and stuff but, also in 2006, this, this took place and uh, I, I, uh, I also had to think about how this was the latest in line of marginalized groups who are taking offense at content and are demanding fair representation.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point because um video games have attracted a range of controversies over the years, you know, from from moral panic to some quite serious accusations around how they depict people and you know native Americans have been depicted in highly stereotypical and Often, down, downright offensive uh, imagery in video games since their inception. Um, you know, if, if we look at older titles, there's you know the, the commonly cited uh, Custer's Revenge in the early '80s that depicts, in reality, you know, you take control of 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 Colonel Custer and really kind of rape a Native American woman on the screen. I mean it was an adult adult title and it was it was designed to be offensive, I think, really. And and certainly you know the American Indian Movement boycotted it and protested against that one. Um, I think that on on those are particularly good and that one are particularly offensive titles. But it also highlights how you know the video game industry has been you know has often repeated stereotypes from other media um, they 've also not taken much note of the opportunities of video games to highlight diversity to to kind of show different viewpoints on the past or on america instead they 've often played to you know the simple common denomin- denominators and ideas over what will sell best. I think those those have come into some of those co- kind of commercial and design Uh, ideas Um, I I think that it also plays to that formula as you were saying kind of old western movies whereby you know they don't show the west from a native perspective hardly you know very few films do truly do that Um, and video games are again kind of regurgitating rehashing and revisiting a white perspective on, on that west on that frontier story
1: yeah. Uh, well as a as a great fan of Matthew Broderick the next chapter <laughs> talking about war games really great pleasure. So in chapter 3 you explore and um, and I quote here you explore the potential ramifications of nuclear conflict. Um, of course, within the Second Cold War and the political rise of Ronald Reagan. Um, You achieve this by taking a very close look at games such as Missile Command and War Games. Since, presumably, I was the worst and most unsuccessful player of Missile Command back in the days, chances of me being the one saving us from the dangers of nukes falling down are zero to none. So, is there actually anything I can do to help?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love the question. I'm sure you're better at it than some people. <laughs> uh, but, but, I mean, firstly, I should say Missile Command. Um, it, you know, a video game from uh, the early 1980s, uh, released by Atari, and uh, the, the game is is an action game whereby you defend. Uh, usually, I think it's four or five cities from. Incoming missiles, uh, which were originally designed to be ICBMs, uh, nuclear missiles raining down on your cities, and you attempt to shoot them down using your own technology, uh, creating these quite spectacular at the time pixel kind of clouds. Um, and the aim of the game is is to last as long as you can um, to, to stop these missiles coming in and destroying your cities, um, and you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, maybe you weren't the best player in the world. Um, I mean, maybe that's the point that ultimately we were all helpless when faced with nuclear war. Even if you were good at the game, you might last, say, 10 to 15 minutes. But you would lose all your cities would ultimately de- be destroyed there wasn't the option to you know somehow fend off nuclear attack uh, forever or to beat the game you'd just last as long as you could but you would fail and there's a powerful story in missile command about vulnerability limits and that we we can't ultimately prevent nuclear attack um, so th- so there's certainly that aspect in you know to that story The game also, in a more game studies way or game history way, it kind of clicked in with the whole arcade way of play in the early 80s, that you face waves of attack, you're focused on high scores, you last as long as you can, and you don't simply complete the game. Missile Command in that way is quite kind of typical of that era. And in some ways, people probably played that game and never got any sort of political or nuclear message from it. They were probably just seeing it as just another game, almost like Space Invaders of shooting things down. Um, I do love some initial ideas behind the design of Missile Command. It's a really interesting case study. The one I, I really like is that that originally they suggested the t- development team suggested that the arcade version of it would be shipped across the country or globally too and your local towns would be programmed into the game as the places that you were set to defend so the idea that you know you would defend your local city from nuclear attack while playing the game and i think that's a really interesting idea of kind of interact making games uh interact with with kind of where you live and to make them have some sense of realism, even when the graphics at that time are very rudimentary um war games is is a you know a great film and a and there's also a a video game based on it too which is quite natural given that given that it was involving a, a computer and a computer game as the subject of the film and I think that it's interesting how with war games it speaks to kind of both in a obsessiveness but also an anxiety over what computers can do if we give them autonomy and what technology is capable of if it becomes somehow sentient um, we, we let get later films don't we Such such the terminate not soon after actually the terminator series um, and they're all kind of uh, exploring um, you know, what can machines do and, the, you know, the issue of kind of the sentient machine and the danger of that, that machine. But they're also kind of homages to it, aren't they too? I mean, you know, if I watch War Games or Terminator again today, um, I'm, I'm struck by their, also their enthusiasm for that subject matter. So, so they're doing both there. Uh, yeah.
1: So uh, circling back to our f- utmost famous Green Beret, Ronald Reagan. Right, he was. No, no think. Sorry, it wasn't Ronald Reagan. Of course, it was was another actor, right? But um, our famous ex president, U.S. President Ronald Reagan, the um, the the way he was. Uh, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I always got the feeling the way he was portraying characters back in his days, uh, aside from a few productions, was a rather um, let's say, um, if you really want to achieve something, you can do it. Hard work pays off mentality, so how would you combine these let's say uh, rather bleak uh, uh, foresight of of a game like missile Command with the strong and powerful message of of achievement and performance of someone like Ronald Reagan
0: yeah I mean Reagan's an important figure in that period I mean he he's he's rec- he's the 1980s president he's he's recognized as um you know, he's tied to ideas about American superpower status, about winning the Cold War in the period. And, you know, he also makes use of, almost like video game imagery and sci-fi imagery when he launches his C- uh, SDI Strategic Defense Initiative in the early 80s. And it gets the moniker of, of a Star Wars program whereby he has the idea that the United States can be defended against uh, any nuclear attack by creating lasers and having this very kind of fictional uh, landscape of defending the United States against the Soviet Union. And I think that that in a way, what, how we might see uh, some of the games of the time, they they, they capture a little bit of that um, power, that directness, that simplicity, the idea that you can become a hero in the video game and single-handedly take on the Soviets or whatever the other whatever the enemies are. Um, yeah, Rambo, the Rambo series uh, with Sylvester Stallone uh stallone in it um there's a sense of again this this kind of masculinity and this you know conquering of any threat and you know to a degree i played some commander games some rambo games from the period they're very kind of cartoony uh but they do give a degree of kind of empowerment to them um and certainly this binary world of heroes and villains, and that you're on the good side, and every single character you come across in the game is on the bad side, and you just get rid of them. There's there's a very uh, there's a there's such a simplicity and naivety uh, over those get those game uh, gamescapes and those ideas. And and I think Ronald Reagan, when he situated uh, the Soviet Union as the evil empire and the kind of villain of the world, he was doing the same. Same sense of appealing to our, our wanting of binaries that we are the good guys and, and and they're the enemies.
1: Yeah, do you sense some sort of of comeback given the the uh, current uh, political general uh, situation with Russia?
0: Um, I, I don't know yet. I, I think that the Call of Duty series has some time, at times traded in those sense of uh, binaries. Uh, I think that you know Donald Trump, his his whole platform of making America great again was trading again in, in kind of binaries and this sense of uh, America as the the, the hero nation. Um, that you know, there's there's elements of that that actually to some extent presage you know the 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 immediate threat of the of of Russia today um I think maybe in the u.s setting it's been going on for for a few few years actually um whether they they have kind of fully um whether video games have fully explored that I don't think they they have yet, but they've certainly traded for some time in, in in simple ideas of, of heroes and villains.
1: I see. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, John, the next chapters take a bit of a jump forward on our timeline. Then uh, chapters four and five do center around the attacks of nine eleven and the following uh, what what has become known as the war on terror. Uh, furthermore. You also pose a very interesting uh, question. And I quote here Do games of the 2000s play a similar role as Rambo films of the 1980s in dealing with national trauma? Well, I have to ask then, do they?
0: (laughs) I mean, to some degree, there's a sense of of rescuing America in these titles. You know, nine eleven was a huge, traumatic and startling event that started the twenty first century, and you know, an attack on American home sc- home soil, it, you know, is it, a huge deal, and, and naturally so. I think that it's inevitable that that nine eleven shapes popular culture as well as yeah. You know, military actions such as the war on terror um video games actually struggle in a sense to respond to that event because they're seen as too frivolous and too um too lightweight to take on the heaviness of 9-11 so so many of them at the time eliminate references to new york city Uh, they simply don't go there Uh, while hollywood censures for a few years video games stay well clear of 9-11 because it's such a hallowed ground and it's such a serious topic and um that that's one issue there but i think what they what they do and which is the point i think i was trying to make with that chapter is that is they also um they explore it but from the uh, from a broader more abstract idea of of getting getting back at terrorists or rescuing America or winning a war uh, be it it may be on a video game but you're still winning the war and beating terrorists and you know citizens who who live through 9-11 maybe they do want a sense of of feeling important not feeling powerless feeling like they're doing something and those video games to a small degree they offer some sense of reward and and catharsis by you playing them and you beating the tor- the um, beating the terrorists, you winning the game for America. I think that's the kind of thing I was trying to uh, explore a little bit there. Um, obviously, it, it, it is still not on a kind of serious level of engagement, um, and it does highlight how um, sometimes video games have have struggled with with serious events. Um, a game that looked at the Columbine school massacre, for example, um, you know that that explored on some level what it was, you know, what that school kidding was about, but was was hugely lambasted in the press. I think that there's there's a fine line, and video games can still have uh, a sense of um, being criticised and being looked at very critically when they deal with serious topics.
1: Yeah. Do you um, do you share the the, uh, the belief that or the estimation that we're talking mostly mostly about um, action titles or sh- shooter titles? Because I was just thinking, wouldn't this has also be a possibility for let's say I don't know strategy games or. Um, Mm, I'm not so sure, but maybe even maybe even thinking of uh, construction, you know, a building simulators or, or rescue missions within the uh, twin towers um, in order to to get help or find finding miss uh, miss people's something like this.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting and original point, isn't it, that that you made there? Because actually, what happens is you know, we get mainstream first-person shooters we get games about about killing and those are games also whereby we we see we have the first person point of view on these things they're a lot more visceral they're very action orientated and they're often a bit more linear in terms of narrative too. the game being didactic and telling us how to think a little bit those have been the more common forms but we haven't play you know we haven't explored um, other ways of treating these topics and other gamic ways of treating them I think think you're you know just your idea of 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 rescuing there were a few kind of fire uh, surface games but not ones focused on 911 that have come out over the years but it's interesting these are not not games that people you know, buy, they're not the commercial mainstream titles. Um, and as the criticism of the industry has been for some time, you know, it gets caught in certain genres and certain types of game, doesn't it? Um, whereas there's a lot more opportunity to explore history, to explore politics, you know, from from different, um, different approaches and different game ideas. Mm.
1: Yeah, it seems like the The broader concept of of uh, let's call it urban urban life uh sprung up really with with the Gta tiles then right and this is also something that leads us to that leads us to my to my next question because um With a simple push of a button, we can digitally traverse hundreds and thousands of miles in an instant today. And this is exactly what you do in your seventh chapter then. You leave New York City behind, how could you, and settle down at the West Coast in order to gain a deeper understanding of the way developer powerhouse rockstar has reimagined their version of a Los Angeles. So while it seems that every gamer out there, including me, is waiting for the next iteration of GTA, what did you find out by examining the ones already existing?
0: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, and also the book. Yeah, it highlights how the book does jump around a bit, doesn't it? When um, we're jumping from from one end of the country to the other, um, I think. The GTA series, I mean firstly it's incredibly important. GTA 5 is the most successful entertainment product in existence. And that's 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 a big statement when we think about you know competition from Marvel or Star Wars. It highlights GTA highlights the pervasiveness and the purchase that video games have in in, in today's society. Um, GTA, in terms of interpreting it, I mean, it's it's a rich canvas there to look at. Um, Sometime I was trying to think of how to approach it, and on some levels, it reminded me this might seem offensive to some historians. But it reminded me of thinking about, say, Alexis de Tocqueville right visiting the United States and writing about democracy in America. <laughs> but or, John, how he- could you? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> or or like Hector Saint John de Crevecoeur, you know, talking about farming in, for the first time in America. You know, basically a, an outsider. Coming to the United States, critiquing it, ob- uh, observing it, questioning it, writing about it, and, and you know GTA, um, certainly in its early iterations provides you know at times a British and at times an international view on America. It, it's cynical, it's satirical, and and, and like Tocqueville and Coe, it's also intrigued and obsessed with the country. It's both appalled. But at the same time, attracted to it, um, I think you know, if if you read maybe like Jean-Baudrillard's America and then played GTA 5, it'd be surprising that at times some of the comments, the satire, the imagery, actually you you know they would enrich each other by doing that. And I think we we learn a lot from uh, this observation of. At times a fake, but at times disturbing real version of Los Angeles, and I've spent some time in in, in LA, and you can kind of get some of the points that GTA 5 does make about it I love the satire I love how it has multiple levels of satire how the game employs a kind of environmental satire whereby you're in your car and you hear a radio show advert um, lampooning some sort of American product or you drive by a billboard advertising again some sort of very stereotypical, um, you know, U.S. Uh, corporate move to win to win you over, and but at the same time, there's some some interesting points about satire in terms of Michael, the character Michael's own personal falling out with the American Dream. There's so much to that game, um, and for me. Um, There are deeper themes within GTA that you might explore over the crisis of masculinity in the 21st century. It's very much a male gaze that's offered in that title um, and alongside all that realistic 3d world mapping it's trying to explore to some extent male desires and frustrations at the same time i do feel obliged i think as i say a little bit in the chapter but but as, as we all know that that gta has very much limits you know it's a game that's had lavished that you know there's so much time has been lavished on this product and so much game industry time spent on it um and it's been kept alive in an online way but it's still um limited in terms of its perspective uh it's problematic gender kind of depictions and you know, it, it, it's it's a flawed product too, but but certainly something that you can richly explore um, and and get something from academically as well as just for pleasure. I would say. Yeah,
1: I was wondering just a little speculation now, um, talking about the next GTA. Um, I've heard the uh, of, or I've come across the opinion that it would be tough as nails to come up with a um, with GTA six because. With, with all the um, debates and discussions about uh, fake news and social media, it is hard to come up with another level of irony, really, and uh, building up a form of meta-critique of the current ongoings in U.S. politics, for example. And this is something that would uh, mean trouble to developers, finding an even, uh, even ironical tonality because the truth is so utmost unbelievable things are going on at the same time just on like twitter or the identity politics discussion it must be really
0: tough for
1: for the next uh, great
0: great gta right yeah I mean, in a sense when the series dates back what twenty twenty five years you know that there was it was clearly a pastiche or a, a an obvious commentary on those things. Whereas now, as you say, um, what's fake and what's real? And, you know, what what's a, the pastiche seems to be, have become real at times, doesn't it? Um, and how we, we differentiate those things. I think it's also a danger that you know, people can play these titles without always recognising the satire and increasingly the, the def, you know, there might be the issue of do people actually you know believe some of the billboards in the next iteration because uh, they see them in real life uh you know it's it, it's a difficult one um I, I don't know also i don't know much about you know programming on the ne- on the next iteration um Perhaps there's also the opp- hopefully there's the opportunity though to bring in some better diversity and and, and for once fix the kind of um, the absence of a of, of a legitimate female gaze. So I think that would be be great for them to finally get round to. Yeah.
1: Well, let's talk about the next chapter then, because. As somebody with a great interest in research focusing upon unironical utopian media depictions and the given difficulties to even find them nowadays, your final book chapter has a special place in my heart. Almost 20 years ago, I briefly also conceptualized the online ludo platform Second Life as an utopian possibility space while writing my dissertation about MMO guilds as political communities. Of course, that was before Deutsche Bank and Telekom were opening up their ghoulish ghost store fronts everywhere in Second Life. Now, though, that I have read through Chapter 7, I'm not so sure anymore. Was I wrong to dismiss Second Life's utopian potential? Help me out here, John.
0: <laughs> well, I'm sure you weren't wrong, or 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 doing your research wrongly. Um, I think there's a sense that Second Life seems can seem a little bit of a, a missed opportunity. Uh, maybe it was a bit futuristic or before its time. Um, I mean, Second Life was an exploration of of digital living. Um, the idea that you could basically move your life into what looked like pretty much a video game and, and, you know, that that would involve currency, it would involve relationships, it would involve building your own home, exploration, community, uh, politics, all kinds of things and to some extent by around 2008-9 there were businesses moving into this online platform, there were political assemblies, there were protests. It seemed to have some kind of uh, potential there to highlight how we could shift into a digital society more. Um, I think Problems came up in a sense, you know the technology platform needed updating uh, it's also kind of went, went a bit went a bit mismanaged by Lyndon Labs, who created the game um, but there's, there's a powerful immersion value to it, and I think that maybe actually that kind of idea will increasingly speak to us again that you can you know make a shift to digital living more that you could maybe Create your own kind of utopian space, or 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 found new relationships in the digital world. Um, I love when I explored the game. I love some of the reference in it. I mean, uh, you had uh, players or or people who inhabited uh, Second Life, creating versions of Yosemite or you know great landscapes, and you had some very intriguing communities who had spent years online, uh, meeting up every day, and and clearly cared for each other. Um, but I think there's a sense that you know some of the dem- democratic rhetoric, some of the t- potential of what a digital utopia could be, um, that certainly had gone when I visited the game. In in a sense, the reality of when I looked at Second Life was it was a more round of digital ruins and 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 weird some weird kind of cults <laughs> online there, um, and so it was more a kind of dystopia than a utopia. And it also highlighted how you know, online worlds are precarious things and, and that, you know, something might grow for a few years, but then it could just be disconnected or disappear, um, highlighting how ephemeral the these projects can be, however big or utopian they start.
1: Mm. So the metaverse is it is it bound to be to become the next second life then?
0: i don't know you you tell me it could well be i I think that i think it's going to be a it's going to be a difficult prospect we we're we have kind of embraced digital lives on so many levels now, haven't we? That the idea of, um, you know, getting that right or one company or one idea dominating that, I think we're at the point whereby uh, we have so many different choices and different interactions that it, that it's hard for one thing to take hold. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, we've taken a lot of your time. So let's bring this thing to an end what are you working on now and of course what will you be playing next
0: <laughs> well i've just i've just finished it finished a, an edited collection on red dead redemption the red dead series by rockstar uh, with esther wright at cardiff university so esther and i have put a, a lot of energy into that book, and that that comes out in the spring. Uh, Red Dead Redemption: History, Myth, and Violence, the video game West. Um, I'm still working a little bit on on Red Dead myself, looking at ideas about time in the game. That's what I'm currently interested in, and I'm trying to do an exhibit, a small exhibit on games uh, for uh, for the Medway Gaming Festival. Festival, I think, if I can get organized quick enough. Um, in terms of playing, um, I, I need more time for this. I, I, I'm looking forward to a few kind of retro titles. I think there's a, a version of Advance Wars, Perfect Dark, Metroid Prime. There's a few oldies that are being reimagined that I'll probably be uh, overexcited with. And then they have not enough time to play. Um, but, but hopefully I will get there. Um, yeah, that's about it, I think.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot to do. Sounds like a great project, though. I can't wait to get my hands on that Dead uh, Redemption uh, project you're working on. I want to thank you for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed it. So take care and goodbye.
0: Thanks so much, Rudolph, and thanks for the opportunity. See you soon. Bye.